Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to um, episode number six of um, Chat with the Experts. I'm uh, your host here today. My name is Sean Young. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Classcraft. And uh, our guest today is Dr. Linza McIntyre, who I will introduce in just a second. Um, before we do that, uh, just a word about you know what we're doing here and why we're uh, having this conversation. So this series, Chat with the Expert, is um, our effort here at Classcraft to um, make sure that educators are able to have access to research and best practices. So we've been having these fireside chat podcast formats with researchers, with experts in the field, people who've been working uh, in the field for uh, a long time. And uh, with the idea to a, you know, give us access to these ideas, to these conversations, this experience, um, and also, um, you know, do that in a way that is digestible, easy to use for um, for for teachers, etc. Um, so we're super happy to have you here, um, Linza. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so I will just uh, introduce you quickly, and we can jump in. How does that sound? Do it. Ready. All right. So um, Dr. Linda McIntyre is a transformational educational leader in the city of Boston. In 2019, she was appointed the superintendent of high schools for Boston Public Schools. Before that, Dr. McIntyre was the headmaster of the Jer Jeremiah E. Burke High School, located in the heart of the Promise neighborhood, the lowest income area of Roxbury and Dorchester, tasked to redesign the state-designed I designated rather underperforming high school, Dr. McIntyre, through her passion, interactions, and interventions, was able to meet the targeted needs of the entire at-risk student body. Um, those are your last uh, current and last experiences, but you've been in the field for much longer than that, haven't you? Yes, yes. You know what? I was born in the work. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I love when it. You, when you want to talk about um, historically marginalized and underserved, you are talking about me. Although we didn't use that language back when I was growing up in a public school system, um, I experienced a lot of what we talk about now around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And because I've had such a firsthand experience with it, it's very easy for me to be a warrior um, in my work um, around these understandings. So I'll start by saying to you, because I know one of the questions is, well, when did this start for you? Mm -hmm. well, it started when I was first met with an inequitable opportunity to learn. And that was around the time of desegregation when policy dictated that all white schools within the Boston public school system um, be segregated, be made to be desegregated, right? And so while the policy said, put black and white students together, the practice was not cultivated to honor that. And so we went in a political state, right? I went to the school they sent me to in an effort to desegregate the school, but the teachers that were in that school, they excluded me, they ignored me. I could raise my hand for hours and not be called upon. And because I loved learning, it hurt to be left out. Mm. 
This was when you were a student, right? This is when I was a student. This is where it started. And as I grew up and became skilled in the work, I was able to put language to those experiences, which made them all the more um, vivid, you know, and all the more important to me. So it sounds like the disconnect between policy and practice is kind Very of- Very much so. Mm -hmm. And it still exists today. Exactly. Because most researchers and policymakers live outside of the classroom, right? And so that through line or that arc of learning between the policy and the practice is often skewed. And we usually as practitioners don't take time to bridge it, buffer it, mitigate it, make it so that it doesn't exclude people or harm them in, in its integration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's when I first began experiencing uh, marginalization and being underserved um, and being um, you know, excluded because of my diversity. I mean, a lot of, a lot of um, children at that time were experiencing that. How, why, why did you make it your life mission? You know, you could have done lots of other things. Um, I, could have, I could have ignored it, but I wouldn't have been who I am, you know, had I done it. So I guess, you know, I was channeling, make the good fight, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, make good trouble. And so I immediately- Good trouble, I'm gonna use that. <laughs> yeah. I immediately went home and I said to my parents, I can't go to school there because they don't love me. They don't want me and they don't teach me. And my mother said, oh no, that can't be so. Here's the policy. <laughs> you know? And my dad was like, well, let me go see if it's anything like you talk about. And if it is, then for sure you won't stay there. We'll make sacrifices to make sure you feel like you belong. Hmm. And certainly my father saw things the way I did, and I left the public school system. I left at the expense of losing electricity from time to time in my house because my parents couldn't really afford uh, private tuition, but they made the sacrifice because of who they wanted me to be. So sad that you had to do that. Sort yeah. Of and so at any rate... Went there, had a wonderful opportunity, got to choose my own learning environment. My dad said, choose three schools out of the newspaper, out of the yellow pages, and we'll go see them all. And you pick the one that makes you feel most included. So I picked this wonderful little school in Cambridge called Cambridge Academy, right across the street from Harvard, diagonally across the street from Radcliffe, in the heart of a most diverse, booming um, educational community, right? Innovative, mm. everything I thought was where I needed to be. And I loved it. I got through most of my high school curriculum by the 11th grade. And I went back to my parents and said, I need to get back. I need to get back to the school that I left because I need to teach them how to make it better for the me's to come. And my father said, oh no, don't worry about those people. And my mother said, well, maybe there's something to that. Let her go. <laughs> right. So I ended up going back. And hmm. I went back to my dismay to find all my classmates way behind, super underdeserved, way marginalized. And at that point, I knew I was going to be a teacher. What I didn't know was the quality of skills I needed to learn to affect the practice. 
But I started teaching with what I had as a senior to the friends that I came back to be with so I could celebrate socially and emotionally the prom and the senior year and all the wonderful opportunities that we look forward to. Celebrations are so important in the lives of diverse students and it's so important in engaging belongingness, right? Um, and inclusivity. So I went back for that. The whole DEIB package was who I was, right? Without knowing. And um, at that point I said, okay, I'm gonna be a teacher. And that's that was where I went. So when I came into teaching, I came in with that toolbox of experiences of what not to do, how not to make children feel the way those teachers had made me feel in that bad experience. And so I entered into um, a lab cluster and I took, and for those of you who don't know what a lab cluster is, it's a, a segregated opportunity to teach disproportionately black and brown students behaviors that are mainstream um, to, to white supremacy, if I could say, or to um, the community in which the school belongs. So these boys and girls had all been excluded. So I obviously knew what that felt like. So my job was to reintegrate them so I could get them to be their best self. And so what I asked them to do in their exclusion was to help me run the school. And I said, I'm gonna need your expertise on math. I'm gonna need you to be my expert at English and so forth and so on. I gave them purpose. I gave them value. And I gave them a belief in what they could become by including them in the process of learning. And I handed them a video right, recorder. I said, on Mondays, you tape the science. On Tuesday, you tape the math. And on Thursdays, we'll all get together and we'll look at that tape and see what levers we need to pull to make improvements for one another. And they took the job so serious. And they would come back and say, I'm gonna have a conversation with my friend Joey when we're playing basketball tomorrow and tell him to stop you know, fooling around when we're trying to get the math done. <laughs> so they started leading in their Taking ownership. Mm -hmm. in ownership and self-correcting and modeling. And before you know it, the part of the school that was supposed to replicate the prison looked better than the school. And the superintendent at the time came to me and he says, I don't know what's gonna happen to the school, but I do know I gotta save this program. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, I was like, it's not the program you need to save. It's their opportunity to learn that you need to save. Cause the program, guess what? I'm moving them all out of here. <laughs> yeah. And I wanna, you know, I can talk forever, but Two weeks ago, one of the students came into my workspace and he says, you don't remember me. And I didn't, um, not by sight. And I said, no, did you graduate from the Burke? Did you go to this school? Then finally he said, no. He said, I went to a pilot school. I was with you in the lab cluster. Mm. I said, I know exactly who you are and I know exactly where you went to school. He said, yes. He said, you made me write that big, long essay, put on a shirt and tie and go interview for a spot in a pilot school where they could decide whether or not I was scholarly enough to attend. 
And I said, and did you get accepted? He said, I did and I graduated. He said, but what I loved most about the experience was you leading it to me. And he said, and when you led me there and I got there, Corey, a gentleman named uh, Mr. Corey McCarthy, he said, picked up where you left off and he nurtured me the remaining way through. And I now have my own business. That's the power of equity, inclusion, and belonging for diverse community members. I mean, that's such an inspiring story, um, you know, and, and I kind of feel like asking, like challenging you, Go for you know, it. how are you, how are you now, you know, now you're, you know, in a high administration role, um, you know, you're, you're not working directly with, with kids like that in lab school. You know, I think one of the challenges we have with, you know, and I, dare I say visionary, I think you were, you know, luckily these ideas are now becoming, you know, more prevalent, but, you know, you were ahead of your time. And, um, you know, how are you doing that at scale Maverick. now? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, fierce warrior. That's right. You know, um, but how, how do you, how do you now, like, you're so like, you're in a big bureaucracy now. How are you able to make that happen at the scale that it needs to happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So the same way I was able to bring a big school out of transformation, out of turnaround and be the only one in the Commonwealth to do it thus far was by making big, small, right? Like the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, right? Yeah, yeah. Even in my big, big work, I make it small because I'm coming to you live today from a school after having been in 15 classrooms today, after mm -hmm. having engaged 50 conversations with young people. That's why when you're like, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm like, it just means you were doing good work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the, I think the challenge is in staying close to the work. And I like to think of the work as not just being big and political, but really, you know, on the ground, right? In terms of instruction, generating will. The best way for me to, re to see results in assessments is to make sure what's happening in the classroom is leading towards good assessments, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we generate will daily as part of the repertoire of teaching and learning for kids to be engaged in the work because that's the heart of inclusion how do i radically love you today so you know you matter and that if no one else believes in you i do and it's going to be big enough and powerful enough to propel you to be your best self that's part of generating will and in my role i used to do it always for students but now i get to do it with adults and students so it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. double the fun so part part of your part of your 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 answer here is leave your office, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I don't overstimulate the office because that's not where I want to be. Mm -hmm. My stimulation is in the community. You can almost look and not see a lot of nothing because everything I need is outside of here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so generating will. But then, you know, you have students who've been underserved that may have a different language, maybe a multilingual learner, and might need us to build some capacity to engage teaching and learning for, for them in really targeted, meaningful ways, right? Um, and so what does that look like? Creating with my school leaders a professional learning community, creating with my school leaders a focus on building common planning time and providing job embedded supports 
through the work day, not waiting two months from now to go to PD, but making every day a learning day and every day a chance to solve a new challenge and to assess new learning. Um, and so, so building capacity in that way, but also being very intentional about creating a culture of belonging. So how do students see themselves in the community? Um, how do we celebrate who they are, their values, their traditions, what they do in the school community? How do we hold that up in esteem and allow them you know, the opportunity to feel pride in what they've given of themselves? And so focusing on that, making sure that we're efficacious in the spaces we provide them, right? In that they feel a sense of belonging, like this is theirs to have. How do I wrap mm -hmm. this in a bow so that you can feel like it's a gift and, and, and own it and love it and enjoy it? So yeah, shaping the culture and being really critical of that. Um, and part of shaping the culture is making sure we've got relationships, making sure we're inviting families in as the first line of teaching, ancestry, right? All of those things are important and must be accommodated in a culture that is going to engage DEIB strategies, right? And you know, it, our our uh, our tagline at Classcraft here is "Relationships are everything." And so, like what you're saying now speaks so much to me. And and you know, as somebody who, you know, I'm. Um, been real doing as much work as I can to educate myself, you know, knowing that I'm, you know, a non-minority person in every single way, uh, you know, on the LGBTQ scale on the, you know, gotcha. um, every single scale you can imagine. But I, um, you know, I think that there's a, one thing that really strikes me about what you're talking about here is the, now a lot of people talking about DEI, but the the B here seems to be what you care the most about, um, belonging, right? That's the goal. Yes. That is the goal. And if you could just create that, the rest of it will fall into place, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. if you can create a sense of belonging for someone, then it, it it's easy to practice radical love and ferocious warmth because they're there, they're in your space, they're with you and you're, you're celebrating and appreciating them. I've heard you say those terms before, radical love, ferocious warmth. Yes. They're, they're part of your like creed. Every time I chat with you, you well, they come out. Like you. explain, explain that to I'm us. Tell what you is the that? magic in those yes. words? Right? Let's hear it. Okay. So imagine you're in a school where every child you see has their hood on and then they have a mask on. So the only thing you're seeing is are their eyes. But they may be covered with a do-rag underneath the hood. Yeah, yeah. You're not really able to access emotion, right? So I stood, I stand at the door sometimes at a school in the morning and I say, oh my God, your eyes are beautiful. Wouldn't it be a blessing to see the rest of your gorgeous face? Strip right off the hood, mm -hmm. right? And I say, I said, oh, look at you. You know what? I'm so happy to be in community with you. Have a great day. I'm Dr. Matt, what's your name? Give me a fist bump or whatever. And it's not like I have to reprimand them or mm -hmm. give them the rule book, give them radical love and they will respond appropriately. Unless of course there's something deeper and more nuanced going on with mental health or social sure, emotional of course. But 90% will smile and unwrap themselves from the hood 
Um, then when I see them in the corridor later in the day, I say, oh, look at that million dollar man. And they look like, yes, <laughs> miss, you know, they get all excited because number one, I'm following up with positive attention towards a positive outcome, right? And mm -hmm. I do that. You aren't faking it, you meant it. I meant it. And then I engage others into the process. And then, you know, I have teachers call me, I didn't have any kids with hoods on in my class today. Oh, and they're celebrating. I said, mm. so that's great. So how do you celebrate that with the students who gave you that wonderful gift, mm. right? So we have to, first of all, inspect the things we respect or respect the things we inspect, any way you want to mm. look at it. If it's important to you, then pay attention to it, right? And once you achieve a goal, it's not status quo. It's an accomplishment. So let's celebrate it. Um, so yeah. But then the other thing I think that's very important is policy. And we talked a little bit about that earlier yeah. on in the uh, broadcast. But again, policymakers sometimes live outside the school community. Um, sometimes they're void of the experiences that educators have had. And their, their information is theoretical, or it's based on data that really are numbers without a face to it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have to make sense of that work in, in terms of who we're serving and how it will either engage or disengage them. And so I always like to think about policy in terms of being really deliberate, right? So I have to deliberately decide if this is the policy I can engage just as it is. And if it is, how is it going to affect my practice, right? Mm -hmm. Is it mm -hmm. going to disenfranchise folks? Oh, I mean, like the turnaround policy was brutal at first, and it made people cry. Over the years, it got a lot better. Um, because What policy is this? I don't know. The I'm school not is it. underperforming. Mm -hmm. Then the policy was... Get rid of 50% of the teachers. Oh, wow. At least. <laughs> okay. Right. right. And so in, in mirror the assessment to the teacher's name in terms mm -hmm. of the performance. Wow. Scary things, right? Not nice policy, right? No. Enough to paralyze you in fear, right? Yeah, absolutely. I knew that. So I had to figure out how to buffer that policy so that it didn't bring them pain but that focusing on building their craft could bring them nothing but joy. And so ways in which we did that was through building a collective organization and where you would say to them, right, because I believe in collective efficacy, whatever happens in this classroom is as much of me as, as you mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. teacher next door. So we own this practice this journey collectively. No one person can hold the weight of achievement on their own for the body of students that we serve. That is such an important, I'm just gonna, I wanna put a highlighter under that. You know, teachers, especially right now today, I feel it feels so isolated. Yes. It is so important, you know, the, the this idea of collective efficacy and we're, even if you're alone in your classroom, we can support you. That is so important. That's really yeah, important. No, absolutely. And so just really focusing on the impact of policy to make sure that it doesn't um, inadvertently hurt, disrupt, 
um, or bring negative outcomes to our school community. And I think that's very important. And finally, just really understanding how important equity is in everything that we do. And not just in what we do in the classroom, but what are the structures that holds the classroom, right? Mm -hmm, what are mm -hmm. the programs that the school holds and how do they represent our belief in equity? And how do we justify giving um, targeted supports that may be more in nature to one person over another? Mm -hmm. um, even when we know they're justifiable, but some people still believe in equality, which says something totally different. Um, and so just really teaching around, you know, what equity is. Equality is everybody has the same thing. You got equity it. is everybody has what they need. Is that kind of? That's right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And making sure people understand that and don't have to feel a guilt around it. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. Right. I often say that building a shared language is the start of building shared understandings and a shared vision and a shared mission, right? So if we're all gonna be in this together, then we need to know what each other mean, what, what each other, we need to know the definition of the words we're speaking in a shared practice, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I speak about student engagement or when I speak about respect, there is a broader understanding of its context as it relates to our workspace or our learning space. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I think we're getting caught up in a lot of that um, in the social sphere. <laughs> yeah, and, no. and it's good to have, you know, common language here that we all understand and, and you know, are using as, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about what you're saying, like policy is about putting in place conditions for equity, the, but the real goal is actually the belonging and, and the connection between those two things is how we show up with, you know, what you're calling radical love and ferocious right. warmth. Like right. I'm trying to understand your, and I'm like, yeah, is no, that summing it up right? Is that right? That's about right. Um, okay. That's about right. So that's like an understanding of this. Let me put it to you this way. Most teaching programs have raised teachers to be cognitive, right? to understand this curriculum and to deliver chapter one and unit two and focus on the content. And deploy techniques, you know. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. But outside of who you are delivering the content to and the lived conditions of those folks, right? So I like to think of teaching as much as socio-cultural, socio-economical, um, and socio-emotional as it is cognitive. And when we put those things together in a cohesive understanding, can we deliver effective learning to each and every child each and every day? Hmm. How do you how do you do that? I mean, it's like it's like changing the complete mindset of teachers. How are you able to do that in your job? Like it seems like policy is easy when you, because <laughs> you can, yeah. you write it down, right? But like, how do you change mindsets? So fortunately, um, in my district right now, that's what we're doing. We have um, a goal around equitable literacy. And in this goal, we state that literacy is liberation. 
Mm, that's and powerful. Our belief is that we are an anti-racist district and that we will be equitable in our ability to deliver instruction. And so part of what we say in this template is that you have the right as a teacher and nothing less than to give each child content-based standard grade level curriculum. Don't say because the student looks like he's a seventh grade on a seventh grade level, but I'm a ninth grade history teacher mm -hmm. that I'm gonna give him seventh grade material because the student will never catch up. You give this student grade level curriculum and you make sure the curriculum is enabling. That is something that the child can relate to, is interested in, matters, right? And that you use targeted universal interventions for the entire class as you assess where they are in their performance. Mm -hmm. And after that's done, if there are folks in the classroom that need more, then you look at what a tiered two intervention might be. But don't go giving everybody tiered two. Don't go over scaffolding um, everything for everybody because you think one child might need support. Mm -hmm. But be conscious of where every child is in his or her learning trajectory and meet them where they need to be. I mean, that's so important. I mean, I, I, and I think that the one of the places educators get caught up on this stuff is like, it's so much work because I have to, you know, they're either thinking I have to do all this extra stuff for everybody or I have to do, you know, I have a class of 40 kids, 40 different courses, but in fact, it's really just a few some of the time and always showing up, right? Yeah, yep, yep. And to understand and to teach people that leadership is not just technical. Those are the easy things to do. Mm -hmm. Much of the work is adaptive, right? So once you get the technical pieces under control, right, now it's about making it work in whatever specific environment you are in, right? And it's okay to have um, some level of structure, but it's not okay for everybody to march to the same beat in different classrooms, different schools, and different communities. I like to say leadership is a dance. Um, you may start out marching with some kind of choreographed moves, but you better be ready to freestyle when you get down deep into the classroom level work with individual student performances, right? Mm -hmm, or your mm -hmm. whole school march will fail you. Mm -hmm. I find it so inspiring that you're still connecting so strongly with actual kids. Uh, you know, I think that there's a, a lot to be learned from that. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of educators, once they move out of the classroom, they never go back. <laughs> Um, even even as administrators, um, I want to you know so much of like what you're sharing here is is your approach to this and your philosophy and, and you know I'm curious to hear like it sounds like you were probably doing some super cool things right now um, at Boston Public Schools like is is there anything? that, you know, whoever's listening, not from your district, uh, some takeaways, some things they can learn, some things they can bring home. Are, are you sharing any of this stuff? Is it publicly, like you were talking about, um, 
you know, this topic around literacy is like, is that stuff publicly available? How are you, how's your district, you know, sharing this fantastic work that you're doing? Yeah, so absolutely. So one of the ways um, I think in which we share is to just have these equity roundtables, right? And during these opportunities, we invite the outside in. Um, we invite our external partners, our politicians, our community members, anyone who's interested in learning what it is we're doing. And we talk about it and demonstrate it and share it in those larger forums. So, and how we keep the work moving forward is through each superintendent developing wonderful relationships through a PLC with the leaders they serve. So monthly, I have a whole day with every leader in my um, superintendency. Mm-hmm. And it's a day of learning collectively. And so not me necessarily doing all the teaching, but me holding hands with them in collective responsibility and leaning in to learn. In building these spaces in these places based on a lot of Meredith Honig's work around job embeddedness, right? How do we keep this close to the work we do? So it's not way up in the sky and have to be, you know, translated down to a practice. How do we stay grounded? Um, How do we stay active? And how do we stay engaged and informed about the work? And so that's the job of the PLC and, and about each other. And that's a place where we come together and we lean into learning together from one another. We look at best practices. We, we do instructional walkthroughs in one another's schools. We share what we saw that was wonderful. We ask questions about things we don't understand. And we create challenges for ideas and um, opportunities that were missed, right? Mm-hmm. How can we think about this moving forward as a real opportunity we make available? to our students that are seated in front of us, right? Yeah. So yeah, so work in the work, I would say. Yeah, it's interesting because earlier on you said, you know, one of the things you uh, do and care about is help schools develop the right culture. And you said in passing, you know, I'm very critical of that. And and I, I wrote it down here, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. How, how can you be critical of culture and not break trust? You know, I think that that's such a hard yeah. thing to yeah. do as a leader and, and be curious to hear how you're succeeding at that. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's courageous conversations, right? Um, sometimes it's just sitting down with someone and sharing this idea around, uh, you know, who we are responsible to teach mm. and what are the best circumstances we can provide for them. So this idea of critical consciousness, and this has been something I've been on. So I'm in a history class today and the teacher's talking about, I wanna say, was it the Stamps Act maybe? And he's talking about public protests, yet he didn't tie in Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. He didn't tie in all these conversations that are going on around nationally about abortions. So one of the things I I talk with the teacher about, so where's the critical consciousness? How do you allow kids to create a schema for what that is all about 
in today's world, mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh yeah, shucks, Black Lives Matter, that would have been great. George Floyd, these are all forms of public protest that yep. speaks to their rights. And so just making folks know that it is so important to have critical consciousness, be part of the work that you do um, in the context of teaching and learning so kids can make those connections, seeing that we do serve a diverse population. And discourse, you know, sometimes kids can teach other kids things real quick and it may take us a month to get it across. And so how do we (laughs) engage student peer-to-peer discourse, right? Mm. Kids can teach each other stuff walking home from school or eat lunch in the cafeteria where we've taken, you know, three planned lessons to get this across with assessment and reteach. How do we use them to help us get this work done and to help one another? I'm so curious about that. How do you do it? How do you get them to do that? So, you know, here you go. If you respect it, you inspect it. So part of what I say to teachers are, you know, I don't really want to see, you know, the sage on the stage. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see you learn. I know you can learn. I want to see you teach and them learn. So imagine that I'm going to understand your teaching through their performance. So if they're sitting there answering one word, closed query, then Mm -hmm. I'm not very impressed with what it is you're doing. But if they're having a deep, nuanced, engaged conversations and they're excited about it and they're sharing their knowledge amongst one another, oh boy, I want to be in your class, you know? And so just having really honest conversations that are practical, um, they don't have to be built on a lot of jargon, but on real talk. Right, And I can give you the jargon and the theory to read, but I can save you a little time by providing you the opportunity to take a, let's take a look at that lesson plan. And so right here looks like a great place for you to engage some peer discussions. And right here, instead of having four people read the whole paragraph, and now you don't know if the other 20 you have read it, Mm-hmm. Right, or if they're paying attention, why don't you jigsaw it? Give these five kids responsibility for these five pages, and then they have to present to their peers public accountability what that chapter is about so that we build an arc of learning and understanding around the full text. Mm. Just teaching them little places where they can get in and, and make marvelous opportunities to excite kids about learning and to include them in the learning process is part of the work that we do. It's interesting because I thought we were gonna have this big chat about DIB and uh, now we're just having a chat about what good teaching is. Well, that is DIB. (laughs) Exactly, and that's kind of the point I wanna make here glibly, you know. When you look at the pyramid, right? At the very bottom is the physiological well-being of our community members. And at the top, is self-actualization, higher order thinking. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't start moving kids from the bottom to the top, then we're not successfully fulfilling our obligation as a classroom Mm -hmm. teacher or a school leader or even a superintendent. It's like, you know, raise the the water and all the boats will float, you know. Absolutely. Do you like, you know, and I'm being kind of, you know, I was conscious, consciously glib there saying, you know, hey, it sounds like it's all just good teaching. I feel like that's 
disregarding the fact of, you know, systemic inequalities and, you know, that's easy to say if it was that easy, it would already be happening. So like, right. where, where's the system not serving that? That's a big question. Um, I know that's why I side so, here. <laughs> yeah. So just want to honestly, you know, um, say that's a big question, right? I think that we're well off at teaching to the middle, which the middle still represents, you know, that white middle class majority, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And our practice have all been built to move that community. I think where we have challenges are with multilingual learners, uh, mm. with students with um, disabilities, right? Yes. Uh, with students with emotional needs that cannot be met by just your common set of rules, right? It may take some prompting or pushing or promoting in order to um, sink those needs and those outcomes into the child's repertoire. Um, so I think those are where the challenges come. How do we differentiate tier one supports from tier two supports to tier three supports? If you're in a ninth grade class and everybody enters on the seventh grade level, you do not go ahead and teach seventh grade material, mm -hmm. right? But you do think carefully about what universal targets you need so that everybody has access to, to the learning. Um, so I think those are some of our challenges. Another challenge I think is uh, assuming responsibility for the whole child. In the past, we just had to assume responsibility for the report card. Um, you got an A, you got a B, you got a C. I don't even have to give you feedback. You don't even have to know what a C means other than 70%. Yeah, and like, yeah. What does that translate into my performance, right? Um, so I think what's gotten to be a little more difficult is providing meaningful feedback that allows the learner to adjust their practice or allows the teacher to address his her, or their practice, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Another one of the things that I think are, are difficult and really taking away um, the attention from the teacher and putting it on the students, I think hurts. Because a lot of the teachers love being on the show. Don't they? Don't they? Oh my God, I'm a prize. <laughs> you know, I got my teacher bag. I got yeah. my teacher marker. And I'm ready to teacher it up. And we're a little less. Teacher it up. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> right, 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 right. And we're, li we're a little less. Well, let me put it like this way. We're more interested in the task you present not you, mm -hmm. the task that you present to students to predict their performance. Yeah, yeah. Right? Rather than your arrival as a teacher. So mm -hmm. switching from teacher-centered classrooms to student-centered school communities is another challenge, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And, and it's, not, it's not one that we'll easily fix. We're fixing it. Uh, but it is a process uh, because it's been around forever. That's right, right. Well, and, and a lot of educators replicate the education they had, right? Right. And like Aristotle says, you know, you are what you repeatedly do. And for mm. them, that's their excellence. And excellence is not an act, it's a habit. So their excellence is the habit of outdated teaching repertoires. Mm -hmm. 
And so our job is to allow them to leave them behind, but present them with some new opportunities and teach them and let them build some habits. So that's the work. Yeah, I mean, and it's so interesting because, you know, the you're really thinking about how to, in a lot of ways, empower these teachers too, right? And, yes. and so I go back to, you know, your whole philosophy here of, you know, in, in some ways, this is you radically caring about them, um, you know, and although it's, it's, it's sounds like a, it would be tough love, uh, <laughs> but, but I'm sure there, there's a lot of love there from, from the way it's you're some talking. Of that, but I'm a warm demander. I'm a warm demander. And as in any uh, relationship, right, there has mm-hmm. to be some moments where, you know, you draw the line in the sand, right? You will not do that because it's not healthy for you or those of you, those of us who are around you and you put your stake in the ground. That doesn't mean, I always say, you don't throw away the baby with the dirty bathwater. Kids will make mistakes and that's okay. And we don't get angry at them um, forever for making a mistake. We just identify the behavior that's wrong and work to correct that while continuously loving and engaging the relationship with the child. I mean, that's such powerful advice. Yeah, even for parents, <laughs> you know, I think that there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think you've you've been at this for um, a long time. I've lived do, it. You've lived it. Uh, do you think, you know, and, and you don't, you, you can, this is also a big question, but like, I feel like there's a lot going on right now in, in American society that uh, is making this work even more important, but also making it more challenging. Do you feel, you know, you've been at this a few decades. Do you feel like there's something going on that's special right now? Or is it just more of what you've seen in the past? No, I mean, I think we are at a reckoning right now. And mm-hmm. I think uh, the pandemic, right, has really propelled us to this space in this place, right? The pandemic challenged a lot of folks, not just our students, our families, our teachers. And there were many teachers that said, hey, I can't do this. And they quietly walked away, right? Mm-hmm. Even gapping holes in our staffing nationwide. nationwide Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. And so having said that, you know, sometimes our greatest challenges can bring us big joy, leaving us to figure out how are we going to take responsibility for building a teacher pipeline? Yeah. How are we going to take responsibility for building a diverse pipeline? Knowing only 2% of Black men in our nation are teachers, what programs are we going to develop right now You yeah. know, to change those outcomes? So really kind of put in our face this responsibility to raise teachers, um, today, right? To build pathways, to change the experiences that we're offering children in our classrooms so that they can want to come back and be a teacher or a school faculty member of sorts. Um, yeah, so I think it's caused us again too to understand the wholeness in this work, right? Mm-hmm. What are the effects of food insecurities? What are the effects of poverty? What on learning, right? 
what are um, the effects of homelessness, right? So we really get to see these things play out in the lives of people we know and love. And so it's no longer them because it's mm-hmm. all of them. So I think that's uh, really front and center because the people that might've thought, oh, this could never happen to me, right? Because I go to the doctor all the time. I got great health insurance. I'm eating a healthy diet. Yeah. Um, and then perhaps, you know, COVID strikes a loved one um, and they too become vulnerable. So I think this is a time where people really um, across the nation had an opportunity to own their vulnerabilities Hmm. and to either learn that you can learn from them and grow from them and build resilience from them, or you can succumb to them. So I, I think that's a lot of what we're still sorting out right now, right? Especially in our classrooms with so many people saying, you know what? Not worth it to me. Or you know what? Can't do it for them. Got to do it for myself. Or you know what? My family needs me. Or I want to go spend time with my grandfather or my grandmother or my elders. Because at the end of the day, as a result of the pandemic, I realized that family's first, right? So there's all of this stuff going on that shows up in the classroom mm. or or is missing from our classroom, the folks. You know, I um, th- this through line, if there was a caption for this conversation, it would be, uh, you know, doc- Dr. Mack, never afraid of a big challenge, <laughs> always ready to roll up your sleeves. And, I, exactly. you know, I, yeah. And I just appreciate that, you know, you we're, you you're not be. throwing your arms down here. You're saying, no, we got to figure it out. Let, you know, let's roll up the sleeves and figure it out. Yes, there's this program called He Is Me. They're focused on building Black teachers, Black leaders, urban classrooms. I want to support that program. Um, there's Latino for Educators. Sign me up. I want to support that program. You know, and just being vocal and being open in knowing what I can do and how I can get it done, right? If you're doing it, I don't have to do it. I can support your ability to push that forward. But yeah, we're reestablishing our teacher population. We're reckoning with a staff shortage. And it's a huge, but you're right. It's such a huge opportunity and I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, But it's such a, like when you look at 80% of educators are white, there's an opportunity here for sure to, you know, bring in other voices. It's so cool. I just had this conversation, I want to say yesterday with, um, oh, maybe it wasn't yesterday, maybe it was a week ago. I don't know. Anyways, we were talking about um, teacher pipeline. And I said, you know, we have um, a program here. It's private. Um, and one of my colleagues runs it called a Boston Teacher Residency. Mm. And Boston Teacher Residency serves in two schools that are sort of horseman charter school and one is a um, third party operator school. So they have their own little thing. But we can replicate that process. Totally. And you know what I said? We can just get down there to those HBCUs, meet those youngsters coming out with their bachelor's degree, put them in our classrooms, give them $35,000 a year to be a teacher assistant, send them over to UMass Boston to get a master's as part of the incentive to 
build our teaching, you know, pipeline. And we're good. When we get finished at Spelman, we go across the street to Morehouse and then mm -hmm. down the road to Clark and then up the road to Howard. And we and be intentional about bringing in the folks we need to help us close the teaching gap. Mm -hmm. From within the community, right? And that's to me, that's doable. Hey, yeah. if you said you needed somebody to go, I'll say, I'll go. I'll go, I'll go <laughs> stand in front of Spellman, then cross the street and do, I got that part. I'll do that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we put them with our teacher leaders and we let them learn, but you know, they can't do it for free. So we have to give them an incentive to be in a classroom learning side by side with the teacher because they can actually go off and work for a tech firm and make twice That's as right. much. That's right, of course. So mm -hmm. we have to give up something to build this out. Linda, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I um, I feel privileged to, to, to be here, privileged to be able to have this conversation with you, share your voice. It's such a unique and powerful one. And I'm always inspired by, you know, how you have turned so much positive um, on something that is such, so easy to fall into negativism about. Um, and, you know, I think that there's, uh, we need more people like you leading the way with, you know, with a smile on your face and, you know, a marching drum. Um, so yeah. lead the way, please. Thank you, Sean. Um, I love being in community with you. I love the work that Classcraft is doing. And I'm always going to be a collective part of anything that you allow me to be. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. You have no idea. And I'll let you get back to your school. Uh, thanks for taking the, the, the call from there. And uh, have a great rest of the day. You too. Thank Bonsoir. you. Bonsoir. Bonsoir. <laughs>